You can get this full audiobook for free on Amazon, by clicking on the link in the description. Is brought to you, by The Book Guide. When I was three and Bailey four, we had arrived in the musty little town, wearing tags on our wrists, which instructed, to whom it may concern, that we were Marguerite and Bailey Johnson, Jr., from Long Beach, California, en route to Stamps, Arkansas, care of Mrs. Annie Henderson. Our parents had decided to put an end to their calamitous marriage, and father had shipped us home to his mother, a porter had been charged with our welfare. He got off the train the next day in Arizona, and our tickets were pinned to my brother's inside coat pocket. I don't remember much of the trip, but after we reached the segregated southern part of the journey, things must have looked up. Negro passengers, who always traveled with loaded lunch boxes, felt sorry for the poor little motherless darlings and plied us with cold fried chicken and potato salad. Years later, I discovered that the United States had been crossed thousands of times by frightened black children traveling alone to their newly affluent parents in northern cities or back to grandmothers in southern towns when the urban north reneged on its economic promises. The town reacted to us as its inhabitants had reacted to all things new before our coming. It regarded us a while without curiosity but with caution and after we were seen to be harmless and children it closed in around us as a real mother embraces a stranger's child warmly but not too familiarly we lived with our grandmother and uncle in the rear of the store it was always spoken of with a capital s which she had owned some twenty-five years early in the century mama we soon stopped calling her grandmother, sold lunches to the sawmen in the lumber yard, east stamps, and the seed men at the cotton gin, west stamps. Her crisp meat pies and cool lemonade, when joined to her miraculous ability to be in two places at the same time, assured her business success. From being a mobile lunch counter, she set up a stand between the two points of fiscal interest and supplied the workers' needs for a few years. Then she had the store built in the heart of the Negro area. Over the years, it became the lay center of activities in town. On Saturdays, barbers sat their customers in the shade on the porch of the store and troubadours on their ceaseless crawlings throughout the South leaned across its benches and sang their sad songs of the Brazos while they played juice harps and cigar box guitars. During the picking season, my grandmother would get out of bed at four o'clock, she never used an alarm clock, and creak down to her knees and chant in a sleep-filled voice, Our Father, thank you for letting me see this new day. Thank you that you didn't allow the bed I lay on last night to be my cooling board, nor my blanket, my winding sheet. Guide my feet this day along the straight and narrow, and help me to put a bridle on my tongue. Bless this house and everybody in it. Thank you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Before she had quite risen, she called our names and issued orders and pushed her large feet into homemade slippers and crossed the bare, lye-washed wooden floor to light the coal oil lamp. The lamplight in the store gave a soft make-believe feeling to our world, which made me want to whisper and walk about on tiptoe. The odors of onions and oranges and kerosene had been mixing all night and wouldn't be disturbed until the wooden slat was removed from the door and the early morning air forced its way in with the bodies of people who had walked miles to reach the pickup place. Sister, I'll have two cans of sardines. I'm going to work so fast today, I'm going to make you look like you're standing still. Let me have a hunk of cheese and some soda crackers. Just give me a couple of them fat peanut patties. That would be from a picker who was taking his lunch. The greasy brown paper sack was stuck behind the bib of his overalls. He'd used the candy as a snack before the noon sun called the workers to rest. In those tender mornings, the store was full of laughing, joking, boasting, and bragging. One man was going to pick 200 pounds of cotton and another 300. Even the children were promising to bring home four bits and six bits. The champion picker of the day before was the hero of the dawn. If he prophesied that the cotton in today's field was going to be sparse and stick to the bowls like glue, every listener would grunt a hearty agreement. The sound of the empty cotton sacks dragging over the floor and the murmur of waking people were sliced by the cash register as we rang up the five-cent sales. If the morning sounds and smells were touched with the supernatural, the late afternoon had all the features of the normal Arkansas life. In the dying sunlight, the people dragged, rather than their empty cotton sacks. Brought back to the store, the pickers would step out of the backs of trucks and fold down dirt disappointed to the ground. No matter how much they had picked, it wasn't enough. Their wages wouldn't even get them out of debt to my grandmother, not to mention the staggering bill that waited on them at the white commissary downtown. The sounds of the new morning had been replaced with grumbles about cheating houses, weighted scales, snakes, skimpy cotton, and dusty rows. In later years, I was to confront the stereotyped picture of gay song-singing cotton pickers with such inordinate rage that I was told even by fellow blacks that my paranoia was embarrassing. But I had seen the fingers cut by the mean little cotton bowls, and I had witnessed the backs and shoulders and arms and legs resisting any further demand.